Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I'm Austin. And today we have a few things to talk about. This is probably going to be a long one, so buckle up. Um, We have been a little MIA. I know we didn't post on Friday. We were in South Carolina um, we have real shit going on in our life, a lot of just you, like you guys do. We don't just sit around and podcast all day. You guys think that's all our whole life. It's not. All right, calm down. Sorry, guys. So uh, some of you hey, may not down. really know us, and um, Austin owns a lean uh, lean kitchen company, which is a franchise company that um, you can go ahead and talk about it. I guess I don't need to talk about it. We just got some businesses. Yeah, but I'm trying to explain where we were. We were visiting store owners. Oh my gosh. Okay, so we own a company called Lean Kitchen. We franchised it in 2018. It's a meal We've prep company, so we do owners. all fresh. No, no, no. You had We your do chance. all fresh prepared meals. <laughs> they taste amazing. They're healthy. Uh, you could stop in. You can grab one meal. You can get your, all your meals for the week delivered to your house if you're in an area of a Lean Kitchen. And so we have several locations around the country. And so we were visiting some franchise owners who own... We were visiting actually multiple different franchises. We were kind of traveling throughout the a couple states there in the south. So anyways, yeah. we were visiting them. It was fun. We were super busy. We were on the road a lot. I was on the phone constantly. And so we never had time to record. Right. Uh, it, wasn't was just, it wasn't just a vacation. You know, and the funny thing is I finished writing this episode on the plane ride into Atlanta mm-hmm. thinking that we'd have time to record while we were there, but we just never did. So anyway, um, we flew into Atlanta, which is crazy busy. I don't know if we have any listeners from Atlanta, but holy moly, That's that place is place. huge. I totally under, underestimated how big Atlanta is. And then we went to Anderson, South Carolina. We visited Clemson University. Beautiful, beautiful school right on a lake. Holy Super cow. Cool, yeah. So cool. And then we went to Greenville, South Carolina. So if we have any listeners from there, let me know because we, uh, we were there and we loved it. We love Greenville. So nice. Yep. So um, with that being said, I also have a note that I wanted to talk about, which was that if you enjoy our podcast, which I know a lot of you do because we're getting to the point where we have a lot of listeners who come back consistently. 50,000 downloads, guys, yeah. which is awesome. So thank you. Super excited and grateful for that. Um, so if you would just maybe share our podcast so we can reach more people. I would so appreciate that. We don't, we don't run ads to promote the podcast. We're, we're, we just we just do the podcast. Yeah, people so only could, know about us from word of mouth because I, I don't run ads or anything like that Like where I try to promote it or anything like that. So. so a big thank you to us is just sharing it, please. Yeah, big time. And then I have a funny story I want to tell. Yeah, let's hear so, it, Austin. So I'm into – this is like my crime, okay, that I want to share. So I'm into sports cards and stuff probably think I'm a nerd. That's okay. So I'll like buy cards, flip cards, buy cards, look at them. Yeah. Sports cards, Pokemon cards, not so much Pokemon cards, but they're nostalgic from when I was a kid. Anyways, if you don't know sports cards and sport and Pokemon cards, all these things are like worth a lot of money now. And so Yu-Gi-Oh was a game like Pokemon and it's very nostalgic to a lot of people. And these cards are from the, you know, late, I think early two thousands, probably maybe late nineties. Anyways, Yu-Gi-Oh cards are worth a lot of money, some of them. And so there's this story. So a Japanese woman sold her husband's entire Yu-Gi-Oh collection in an online auction after finding out that he cheated on her. So she started the bid at less than a cent for 26 boxes of cards sold last Saturday. 
it contained all of these original packs unopened, like very rare Yu-Gi-Oh cards. Like imagine if Worth I said a ton of money. Yeah, imagine if I said, "Hey, pull a, uh, a pack of fresh Pokémon cards first edition from 1996." Like nobody has that, right? So that's why these things are worth money. So she put she expressed that she just wanted a fair deal on the cards following her husband's unfaithfulness. And under her username, she expressed her uncertainty in the value of the cards in the game itself and was only able to guarantee that they were not damaged and were real. So in an act of revenge against her husband cheating on her, she took all of these cards and sold them for $188,000. So this dude That's knew what, what he, I'm talking about. This dude knew what he had, obviously. And Except he didn't at the same time because uh, okay. he didn't know he what, knew he what he had in a wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cards, though. He knew what he had. <laughs> and, yeah, she sold all of them. So that's, that's a crime. That's the crime I have to share. Which is not really a crime. The crime is that he cheated. And the revenge and justice is that she sold his cards that were worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Insane. One hundred and eighty-eight grand. That's what I call justice. Justice is served. I loved it. So that was that was the first crime story I've ever told on the podcast. Yeah, it was. I thought it was noteworthy, worth Austin um, sharing with us. I don't contribute much. (laughs) Usually, but you do. You you contribute comedic relief. And um, anyway, I I think it would be fun if in the future you contributed more stuff like that because. You obviously brought that to my attention, and I thought it was hilarious. So hopefully you all enjoyed that, too. But Thank you. All right, so... What you got for us today, girl? Well, I want to give you an update on a past episode that we did. Back in December, we covered the case of Kara Kapetsky and Jessica Runyons. And if you're interested in hearing that story, it's episode 23. So last week, Kyler Eust, the main suspect in the case, finally went to trial... I followed his trial while while we were in South Carolina and um, probably shouldn't have been as surprised as I was that he tried to blame both girls' deaths on his brother who took his own life while he was locked up, while, like, while his brother was locked up. He killed himself. But, um, you know, I shouldn't have been surprised. He's such an idiot. I'm going to repost his picture of his face all burnt from the flash burn of him setting Jessica Runyon's car on fire because I just think it's... So fitting. But anyway... I um, was so pumped about the trial the whole time out there, and I'm like, if you've listened to the episode, you know I'm not into crime. Mm-hmm. I'm only into crime for the episodes where she talks to me and tells me like this. So when she follows up from one, and I didn't really remember that case, I was just like, crazy. It's kind of <laughs> local, though, because it yeah. happened in... Um, Casey. I think Yeah, I think it was in Baser. Um, but anyway, and I'm from that area. Like, that's where I was born and raised. So I remember seeing the billboards with her face, and just to see it all come to fruition and him come to trial was very intriguing. Um, Kyler was convicted on a count of voluntary manslaughter in the death of Kara Kapetsky and a count of second-degree murder in the death of Jessica Runyons. The jury recommended that he get 15 years on the first count and life for the second one. So sentencing is scheduled for June 7th, and I'm sure we'll have an update when that time comes, but I hope he spends the rest of his life in jail. He's a very dangerous person. There's absolutely no reason that he deserves to be anywhere but a cell. Freaking idiot. So the case, though, that we are talking about today is um, it was recommended by Lindsay Verbick. So thank you so much for recommending this case. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because when she recommended it, she said Shannon and Chris, and I thought she was talking about the Shannon and Chris Watts case, um, but I had never heard about this case before. So this is Shannon Christian and Chris Newsom. 
that we're going to be talking about. Um, but before we get started, I, I want to do something I haven't done before in any episode, which is offer a warning to our listeners because... Oh man, you told me this one's bad. I'm leaving for this one. Well, this case is probably one of the most upsetting cases I've come across. Like some of it just gets really, I don't know, disturbing. So some of you freaks are driving along right now, turning up your volume going, yeah. Well, there's just something about this story that truly terrifies me because it was a completely random act and could have happened to literally anybody. But I really hope we can learn something from this story so um, that this isn't all just done in vain. But this is the story of Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom. All right. So Shannon Christian was born on April 29th, 1995 in Nacogdoches, I think that's how you say it, Texas. Her family moved to Louisiana for a little bit before ultimately moving to Tennessee in 1997 and settling down in Knoxville. Shannon graduated from high school in 2003 before she went to the University of Tennessee majoring in sociology. And at the time of this story, she was a senior getting ready to graduate. Christopher was born on September 21st, 1983. He graduated from Halls High School in 2002, where he was an exceptional baseball player. Several people said in interviews that he could have played at a professional level, but he didn't want to go to college. He wanted to be a tradesman, so he became a carpenter, and he was a really gifted carpenter at that. So... Shannon and Chris were a couple, and they had only been dating for a couple months, but they were pretty smitten with each other, according to their parents, and by all accounts, they were two really good kids. And according to an article on KnoxNews.com, Chris and Shannon were the kind of kids that their parents had always hoped for. And speaking as a mother, you know, all I ever worry about with my kids is that they just grow up to be good people, just Do the right thing. Yes, just do the right thing. Just be good kids. Stay out of trouble. But um, these two, they were compassionate, hardworking, smart, funny, beautiful, just everything you would want. So on January 6, 2007, their lives both were tragically cut short. It was a Saturday night, and Shannon and Chris were planning on going out to dinner before they went to a friend's party. Shannon was at her best friend Kara's place. You getting, said 2007? Uh, yes, I believe so. Let me just double check. Yeah, January 6, 2007. So they're like, uh, they were born in 95. Mm-hmm. So they, well, if she was a senior in college, so um, she probably was 22. 22. Yeah, okay. I was going to say 21, 22. Um, so anyway, they're getting ready to go to a, a friend's um, party. She's at her friend Kara's house getting ready at Washington Ridge Apartment Complex. And at about 8 p.m., Kara left to go to the party, and Shannon stayed behind to wait for Chris. Chris had been golfing earlier that day, and at about 8.47, he withdrew $100 from an ATM. And at about 9 p.m., he dropped his friend Josh off at the party. So Chris told Josh that he and Shannon would be there later after they went out to eat first. And at this point, Kara called Shannon to let her know that Chris was on his way and that he would be there in about 10 minutes. So this is just to give you kind of a timeline. And by the way, I always post the links to my sources in the script that is like you can find it through our Patreon. Um, But the whole court transcript is available online, and that is where I pulled like 95% of my information. Yeah, so 
Um, it is going to be pretty specific. And I'll give you a warning before it gets really graphic. But um, anyway, just wanted to throw that out there. So after Chris got there, between 9, 10, and about 11 p.m., they were getting ready to leave. And they were going to drive separately, but to the same place. So while Shannon was in the driver's seat of her forerunner, Chris was standing right outside her window kissing her goodbye. And that's when a group of guys ran up on them, carjacking them. They forced Shannon and Chris into the back of the car and took off. Hold on. They weren't carjacking then. Well, yeah. They were kidnapping. Yeah, it was. But we'll learn later. It was a carjacking gone wrong. I mean, it was a carjacking that that led to a kidnapping. So they were trying to steal Shannon's car? Yes. But they ended up kidnapping them at the same time. In the back of Shannon's car? Yes. Oh, so it was a carjack kidnap. Yes. My goodness. That's not cool at all. No. So by 10 p.m. That'd be scary as hell. Yeah, I mean, they were so unsuspecting. He's He's just leaning in a window kissing her goodbye and that happens. Yeah, and then all of a sudden this group of people, they run up, shove them into the car to steal the car. But, I mean. Gosh, that sucks. Yeah. So by 10 p.m., Chris and Shannon still hadn't showed up to the party. Their friends were calling them, but neither of them were responding. And when they hadn't heard from their friends by 11, they went to the apartment complex to see if Shannon and Chris were still there. They found Chris's truck in the parking lot, but Shannon's 2005 Toyota 4Runner was missing. Meanwhile, just after midnight at about 12.30 across town, Xavier Jenkins arrived for work at his job at Waste Connections. He waited in his car for a coworker to arrive and notices that across the street, there's a house with the porch lights on and some activity going on inside the house, which is unusual. If, you know, he usually shows up at his shift at the same time, so he's probably used to those surroundings, mm-hmm. and this was unusual. So he also notices a Toyota 4Runner in front of the house that he had never seen there before. So it's around this time that Shannon's dad gets a phone call from her saying that she changed her mind and would be coming home around 2 or 3 a.m. So the original plan was that she was going to stay at her friend Kara's house, but then she called her dad to say that she was coming home around 2 or 3. So I can't help but wonder, I don't know for sure, if they forced her to make that phone call. Like That makes sense. I mean, that's the only logical explanation, is that they forced her to make that phone call, maybe because they thought people would start looking for her. I don't know, but it's just odd that that happened. Cell phone records showed that that call came from the same area where Xavier was waiting and noticed her forerunner. So while Xavier was waiting to go in for his shift, he decides to go to a nearby convenience store, and when he comes back, it's about 12.50 in the morning, and he notices the forerunner pull out of the driveway and slowly drive away. But when the car passes Xavier's car, it slowed way down, and he could see four African-American men in it. And he said that the driver was wearing a hoodie and looked at him with kind of a strange face. He said he was mean-mugging him. But he didn't see anyone else in the car. He just saw, saw four men. Mm-hmm. So at about 3.30 that night... Kara comes home and notices that Shannon isn't there and her overnight bag is gone too. So later that morning, and we're talking about the 7th, okay? So now we're into the following day. Mm-hmm. Early in the morning, around 6.30 a.m., Xavier Jenkins comes back to Waste Connections 
after running his normal route, and he notices that the forerunner is parked facing these train tracks nearby. So he goes up to the forerunner and looks inside, but notices that there's nobody in it. So Kara and Shannon's mom are both calling Shannon repeatedly, but neither of them can get a hold of her. Shannon never made it to work later that day either, which was totally out of character for her. So Shannon's mom is starting to get super worried. She called local hospitals and anyone she could think of to see if anyone had seen her. She also filed a missing persons report. And Chris's family, meanwhile, is doing the exact same thing on their end. But what blows my mind is that when Shannon's family filed the missing persons report, they initially told her that they wouldn't be searching for her that they would have to do it themselves. What? And I don't know why. I couldn't find that answer, but you know, maybe she just wasn't gone long enough. Like I have no idea why they would tell a mom frantically looking for her daughter that, you know, while she's calling to file a missing persons report that they're not going to go look for her. So Shannon's family actually reaches out to her cell phone company and requested information about her last known whereabouts, and they were able to tell Shannon's family that her phone last pinged off of the Cherry Street phone tower in East Knoxville. So all of this is happening in East, or I'm sorry, in Knoxville, Tennessee. Meanwhile, that day, a railroad employee found Chris's body near the railroad tracks. He had been shot multiple times with his hands tied behind his back, a bandana covering his eyes, and a sock stuffed in his mouth. His head was wrapped with a sweatshirt, his feet were bound together, and his body was set on fire. Oh my gosh, who found him? Uh, Somebody working for the railroad. Holy shit. He was found near the railroad tracks. Then, um, so a search party for Shannon was still underway when they found her car later that night at about 1.30 in the morning on the 8th, and it was parked at the corner of Chipman and Glider Street. The decals that she had on her car had been peeled off, and her belongings were missing. The front seats had been moved all the way back, which indicates that someone else was likely driving, someone taller than her. The back seat was caked in mud, and there was a pack of Newport cigarettes in the back, which was out of place since neither Chris nor Shannon ever smoked. There were not any fingerprints on the car, but there was one bank envelope in the back of the car that had a fingerprint on it. And when an envelope, I didn't even know a piece of paper could have a fingerprint. Mm-hmm. It can, but I don't know if it was one of those paper envelopes or one of those leathery type of bags. All I know is it said envelope, so I'm assuming it was paper. I get what paper, you're saying, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when the evidence technician processed that fingerprint, he discovered that it belonged to a man named Lamericus Davidson, who just so happened to live on Chipman Street right by where Shannon's car was found. So authorities hurriedly get a search warrant for Lamericus's house and realize that he also has a warrant for failure to appear in court on a past case, so they show up to his house that Tuesday the 9th at 1.39 p.m. Nobody was home. So Sergeant Keith DeBeau was among the officers there to execute the search warrant. And when he entered the kitchen, he noticed a 32-gallon trash can that was kind of oddly shaped and looked like there was maybe somebody hiding in it. I mean, so, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. I'm just like, you know... 
I think that police officers are way underpaid and underappreciated. Mm -hmm. And, like, imagine how scary it would be. Like, call me whatever, a puss, whatever you want, just not very tough. I, 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 don't, I don't get excited. I, it doesn't, like, give me a thrill, the thought of walking up to this person's house that you believe just killed and kidnapped these people, and they have warrants, and, like, mm -hmm. knocking on their door, not home. You just that would be intimidating enough. Yeah. And then having to go, okay, I'll search the house because I have a warrant. And walking through, like, oh my gosh, hats be, off to police officers because that's scary. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm impartial a little bit too because I was actually named after a police officer who was shot and killed in the line of duty. Mm -hmm. I believe many, the majority of police officers are the most brave individuals. Like, obviously, every every profession has bad people is going to so, have a bad apple. So I'm yeah. not over here trying to sit, trying to start any political arguments. But I do have respect for police. And if you have no respect for police whatsoever, just don't listen. Because I can yeah. put my foot down pretty easily about that. I don't mind stating my opinion on that. I'm not, not trying to get get off on a tangent. But yes, in moments like this, when this man, this this police officer is going through a house not knowing what's around the corner. That's freaky. So scary. Yeah. That's crazy. Anyway, so that, sorry to interrupt, but that was So what he I was approaches thinking. this 32 gallon trash can, right? It's oddly shaped, looks like someone's hiding in it. So he's got his gun drawn and he carefully lifts open the lid and could see an arm that was partially covered with fabric and when he touched the arm, he realized that it was a dead body. Oh it my was gosh. Shannon. Oh, I just got the goosebumps so bad. So at oh, this man. point, they, be they begin collecting evidence throughout the house and discover that Shannon's clothing, her purse, her shoes, her digital camera, and her iPod with an engraving on the back that said, Shanann Christian, Mom and Dad, we love you. They also found Chris's baseball hat and driver's license. Oh, my gosh. This is so sad. All in the house. Oh, man. So. See, and like if I came across that body, the first thing I'd want to do is freaking run out of that place. Like you get scared. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I, I, I don't care what I sound right now. I get freaked out. No, would... I, you, it's normal. You're yeah. human. I yeah. mean, it's normal human emotion to feel terror when you see something like that. Like all you think is, shit, I'm next. Right, and then you just don't know. I mean, I'm sure he went in with other officers who had his back, but like right. just not knowing what might lurk around the corner. Oh, it creeps or, me like, out. Like you're not familiar with that house as much as someone else might be, so you just don't know. Like yeah. it's got to be so scary. Yeah. So then on Thursday the 11th, just five days after the murders, police found Lamericus in an abandoned vacant house with a man named Eric Boyd. He was wearing Chris's tennis shoes when he was arrested that were also oh, too small for him, and he was brought in for questioning. How did they find him? Um, you know, I'll, honestly, I don't remember. I It's been a few days since I read about this, but I think they might have um, had tips from other gotcha. people who knew where and he was. they found him in a vacant and house. And there was, yeah, the, the man, Eric Boyd, was later found... Um, Guilty for, like, helping him hide. And we'll we'll get to that point. But so Lamericus Davidson. So this is going to get confusing because there's a lot of players in this. And I'm going to put the pictures on the Mama Mystery Instagram page. Once I'm out of Instagram jail. Right now I can't post anything. It's a long story. Anyway, Lamericus Davidson. I'm going to try to keep these all straight, okay? He was 25 years old, a convicted felon with no job, no car. 
His girlfriend had just dumped him, and his only source of income was from selling drugs. He used cocaine and weed and lived in a rental house um, in which he was behind on rent. He owed multiple people money, so it's safe to say that he was not in a very stable place in his life. And in December of 2006, just one month before the murders of uh, Shannon and Chris, George Thomas, Latalvis Cobbins, and his friend Vanessa Coleman all came to live with Lamericus. None of them had cars or jobs. They were literally a rat pack of losers, all of these people. Lamericus Davidson, okay, he was originally from Memphis and had been arrested on carjacking and robbery before serving five years for that and before he gets out and he does it all over again. He was also indicted later for a second robbery that was committed at a pizza hut just one day after the murders. So this guy, Lamericus, is like the ringleader, I guess, of this whole pack. Like you can just think of Lamericus as like the guy that's kind of... The mastermind. Yeah, if you can even call him that. I would hate to even give him that much credit. But yeah, he's pretty much like the ringleader, okay, of the, the rat pack. Can't imagine, can't imagine what the followers are like. Yeah. So Latalvis Cobbins, he was Lamericus's half-brother, and he and George Thomas were essentially homeless when they moved in with Lamericus. Vanessa, the girl they, that came with them, was just hanging around with them, and even though she had a family that she could have called for help or like a home to go to, she chose not to. She chose to live with these guys instead. Nobody paid rent. They all just kind of lived in the house, ate whatever they wanted, and apparently it caused some drama because Lamericus was getting tired of everybody. So it was not like this happy home. It was far, far from that. So anyway, that's just to introduce you to these players, okay? While Lamericus was being questioned by investigators, he changed his story five different times. First, he told them that he left his house Friday before the murders had no idea what happened. Then he said Latalvis Cobbins showed up at his house with Shannon's car, but that Shannon and Chris were not in it. He then told them that he drove Shannon's car to make some deliveries for his super illegal small business. When he found out about a body being found near the train tracks, he decided to wipe down the car to erase fingerprints because he was worried. So then he changes the story again, this time saying that he was at home all day on Saturday and that he was selling drugs out of his house. He told investigators that he eventually went to bed and that when, and when I say went to bed, he woke up around 4 or 5 p.m. I had to double check that. P.m. is when he woke up. He heard about the body found by the tracks. He said he didn't have anything to do with Shannon and Chris's deaths, but that Latalvis told him George Thomas killed them. So, yeah, they're all kind of just blaming each other at this point. Well, I mean, Lamericus is, and later they will too. But it's just, you can't get a, a straight story out of any of them. Right. So when he changed his story again, he said that Latalis and George kidnapped Chris and Shannon from some apartments, brought them back to the house so that they could rob them. He admitted to seeing Shannon in his kitchen and that she was saying she didn't want to die. I actually do believe that part to be true, and that just makes me so sad. He said he never actually saw Chris, 
and he told investigators that he didn't want anything to do with the crime, so he left to go smoke some weed down the street. I'm just a good old boy, as you can tell from my record. (laughs) Yeah. I want nothing to do with this. I want nothing to do with this. I'm just going to walk down the street, act like I didn't see a thing. Right. Really good, good person. So the same day that Lamericus was brought in for questioning, police found and arrested George Thomas Latalvis Cobbins, and then Vanessa Coleman was arrested later, um, all for their involvement with the murders of Shannon and Chris. So, okay, this part is really tough to talk about. This is the warning, okay? And it's about the autopsies of Shannon and Chris. So for fair warning, this gets really graphic, depicts horrible sexual assault. So if you don't want to hear it, I suggest skipping forward at least two, two and a half minutes. I'm literally leaving the room because I don't want to hear it. Okay. All right. So Austin legit did leave the room because he can't stand this stuff. So um, Chris, he was anally penetrated before he died. And he had significant injuries to his genital area. Semen was also found inside of him, but the fire destroyed the DNA from that semen. He was shot three times. Once was through his neck, the other to his lower back, which severely injured his spinal cord. And the third and fatal shot was to his head right above his ear, which severed his brainstem. His feet were bare and muddy indicating that he walked to the area where he was shot and killed. He was dressed only in his underwear, a t-shirt, and a button-up shirt over that. He was covered in gasoline and wrapped up in a comforter before he was set on fire. Shannon had bruising and abrasions in and around her mouth. Her genital area also suffered horrific damage, She was beaten so severely down there that there was a solid blood clot present in that area. She had bruises on the back of both of her arms, all over her head, legs, deep bruising to her upper neck um, and back. She was rolled up and tightly bound and forced into that trash can. A white plastic bag was placed over her head, covering her mouth and nose and knotted to keep in place. She was placed in five big black trash bags before she was put in the trash can. And it absolutely crushes my soul to even say this, but she was alive the entire time. Her death was caused by suffocation from being in those bags. And it's estimated that she died sometime between Sunday afternoon and Monday afternoon. Lamericus's sperm DNA was found inside Shannon and on her jeans. So was Latalvis's. They tried boring, pouring bleach in and around her mouth to destroy that evidence, but obviously they failed. So Austin is back. And I don't know what you said, but I, I really don't like hearing that stuff because, well, one, I'm not trying to have nightmares right now, mm-hmm. but two, it's like unbearable. I don't even know what you said, but give me the gist of what you said. Um, they were both raped, both raped, and um, they had really just horrible injuries from that. And so, yeah, I didn't. I'm not going to go into details. Yeah, with no, you, that's but good. That I just gosh, vicious. I hate that. Yeah. Oh, and um, she was placed in a trash can and died while she was in the trash can. So, just the thought of somebody's Did she, like, daughter, suffer? friend, yeah, big oh time. My gosh. The thought that somebody would treat a human life like that, like they are any literally life. trash. Yeah. Any life, yeah. God. 
It's sickening. Oh my God, it's so sick. I can't, like, when I was reading about all of this, it was really hard for me to, like, I literally just, you know, I'm not stone cold. Yes, I love, you know, I'm interested in true crime and I enjoy writing and making the podcast, but. Kelly's an extremely compassionate person. Oh, big time. Yeah. But don't get me wrong. When I'm reading this stuff, I'm literally gasping. I'm covering my mouth. I'm covering my eyes. Sometimes I just like collect myself because I'm just like, Jesus Christ, I cannot believe people like this exist. And I don't like I do the podcast and I enjoy that being on the podcast. But the reason I don't enjoy true crime is because it's so much negativity. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yes. And like I understand completely – like the psychology, if you guys – if this is your first episode, on other episodes we've talked about the psychology, so we don't have to go super into it. But I understand why Kelly and you people enjoy this. Mm-hmm. But I just – I don't like the negativity it is. And that's what it is. Like to me – like I don't watch the news. And I don't watch the news because news reports 95% negative things. And I don't need to hear that there was three shootings tonight and this and that. Like, it's just, to me, it's, it bring, I, I get brought down very easy from yeah. that stuff. But so see, like, like, if I would have listened to that harsh stuff you just said, I would think about it all night and like, it would bring me down. Oh, you would. The whole thing already brings me down. Yeah. And I think that's why it's important for us to sometimes take breaks. Like we didn't post on Friday and, you know, for a while I've always tried to get episodes out Mondays and Fridays and I like put this pressure on myself but sometimes I do need to take a break because sometimes writing these episodes talking about them it's just it's a lot it's heavy shit Mm -hmm. so so anyway back to the story later that month on January 31st of 2007 Lamericus Latalvis George and Vanessa were charged with a total of 46 counts Lamericus Davidson, arguably the ringleader of this murder, was sentenced to death by lethal injection. I can think of a million ways that would be more appropriate to kill him besides this, you know, let's just stick an IV in him and he goes night-night. I Mm -hmm. can think of so many ways I'd rather see this guy go down, but whatever. I'm glad he got the death penalty. It's like the most justice I've seen in a long time. While waiting for trial, Latalvis got into even more trouble when he assaulted a correctional officer. So, I mean, these criminals are about as dumb as they come. He was ultimately sentenced to life in prison without parole. Eric Boyd, the man that Lamericus was found with, was charged with being an accessory because he essentially helped Lamericus hide out. He was sentenced to 18 years in prison for being an accessory after the fact to carjacking. And in 2019, he was convicted of premeditated murder and rape against both Shannon and Chris. So in addition to his 18-year sentence, he was also sentenced to life in prison. So Vanessa, she I was, like that. I don't know enough about the justice system, but I like when it's like double life and stuff because mm-hmm. like don't no chance. Yeah, not like okay. You got parole on your first life. No, nope, not on the second life. Like it, it just to me, it's like yeah. lock it and throw away the key. Yeah, but this case gets crazy, Austin. Like there's something that happens that I've, that I've never seen before ever. So just hold your horses. Okay. Vanessa was 18 at the time of the crime, and she admitted to being there when everything went down, but she claimed that she was being held hostage the entire time and forced to do things that she didn't want to do. But while authorities were gathering evidence from the house where the murders took place, they found a journal that belonged to Vanessa, and in an entry from January 9th, which would have been three days after the murders, she wrote, quote, "'Last night was one of a kind. We stayed with a crackhead that is cool as hell.'" 
It snowed a little bit, but it's already melted. Let's talk about adventures. I had, in all caps, one hell of an adventure since I've been in the big TN. It's a crazy world these days, but I love the fun adventures and the lessons that I've learned. It's going to be a long, interesting year. Oh my gosh. So she was sentenced to 53 years in prison for her involvement in what went down. So this case garnered so much attention, not only because of the gruesome details, but because many of the residents in the area believed that this should be considered a hate crime since it was a group of black people who killed two white people. But with that, there were counter protests as well from people who disagreed. There was also controversy because a lot of people felt like the media didn't cover the crimes very well or even ignored the murders because the victims were white while the assailants were black. So like it was this big race issue. But again, a lot of people, including journalists, disagreed. Then in 2011, the judge that presided over the cases, his name is Richard Baumgartner, was forced to resign after he admitted to being addicted to drugs and purchasing prescription pills from convicts. He was also accused by a woman of trading legal favors for sex during breaks in court sessions. What? A judge. A fucking judge. Oh my goodness. So needless to say... The Rat Pack of Losers and their lawyers believed that they deserved a new trial since he admitted to being on pills during the original trials. And sure enough, on December 1st of 2011, Judge John Kerry Blackwood granted new trials to all four idiots, which was then appealed to the Supreme Court of Tennessee, which essentially assigned the decision back to Judge Blackwood. So there's technically no proof that he was high while he was on the bench. But ultimately, in the end, retrials were granted for George and Vanessa, but not for Lamaricus and Latalvis. So with these new trials, the max sentence that they would be allowed to receive was the sentence they already had. So they, they could be tried, convicted, and sentenced the same amount or less. So ultimately, Vanessa was convicted again on multiple charges that were all slightly less than her previous convictions, but she still received 35 years minus credit for time served. So she went from having a 53-year sentence to a 35-year sentence for her involvement. And in August of 2014, Shannon and Chris's families were notified that her sentence was reduced by 16 days per month since she had good behavior in prison. That's kind of ridiculous for somebody who wrote how much fun it was and how it was interesting. Yeah. And like, you know, that's an effed up person. Yeah, clearly. So at the parole board hearing that December, it was um, denied. And she was eligible again in 2020. So on December 8th of 2020, the parents of the victims showed up to remind the board why she should stay locked up, and the parole board voted unanimously to keep her behind bars. So she will not be eligible again for parole for another 10 years, which is a relief. Hopefully she just keeps getting denied. I don't know what's going to happen, but... George Thomas, his retrial ended with a guilty verdict on all 38 counts. He was resentenced to life in prison. He has tried to appeal his case to the U.S. Supreme Court, but they would not even hear it. 
So that's why, why would you? That's satisfactory to me. Um, in 2014, two new laws were introduced. The Chris Newsom Act was introduced to eliminate the need for a judge's signature on a jury verdict after the delivery of a unanimous verdict. So this eliminates the 13th juror rule, which stipulated that a judge must validate a jury's verdict. If this law had been in place, the retrials would have been avoided, saving the victim's families a lot of unnecessary heartache when, you know, they found the judge to be, you know, guilty of all his stuff and they had to read, like, none of that would have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the Shannon Christian Act restricts attorneys and defendants from attempting to portray a victim in a negative light. So during Lamericus's trial, he tried to say that Shannon was at his house because she was there to buy drugs, which was a complete lie and really hurt her family because it's a character assassination. And when you consider the fact that there were laws in place to protect protect the jury from hearing about Lamerica's past carjacking convictions, it seems really unfair that he would be able to slander Shannon when she's not even alive to defend herself. So what's the law state? So it just states that attorneys and defendants cannot attempt to portray a victim in a negative light. So you just, you can't talk shit, you know, and like say, oh, she was there to buy drugs. There's no proof of that. You're just a liar. Mm Mm-hmm. So there have also been foundations created in their legacies. A scholarship fund has been created in Shannon's memory that sends one student from her high school to the University of Texas, or I'm sorry, to the University of Tennessee every year. And it's called the Shannon Gale Christian Foundation, which you can find online. And another foundation in Chris's honor holds an annual baseball tournament that also gives a scholarship to one graduating baseball player each year. And then... To just, you know, seal this whole, the cherry on top, I guess. I don't know if I'd call it that. That's probably inappropriate, but I'm tired. January 23rd of 2018, Judge Baumgartner was found dead in his home. And there was no foul play suspected. He was 70 years old, but um, I, I don't know if he died of a drug overdose or what the deal was, but that happened. Interesting. And that is the story of Shannon Christian and Chris Newsom. Gosh, quite that was a, doozy. a really sad one. Yeah, and I'm sorry. Maybe next time I will. For our hey, next this episode. is what your people like, so don't apologize <laughs> to me. Like, I guess people yeah. are probably like, "That was a great one, Kelly. Thanks." Yeah, so I'm really um, interested in covering the BTK killer sometime. So that's going to be coming up at some point. You can keep sending me recommendations. I still have my whole list of recommendations. Um, But I don't know what we're covering next week, or I guess Friday. It would be Friday. So stay tuned to find out. Thanks for listening. Mama Mystery out. Good night. Well, have a good day. Or that, yeah. (laughs)